Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. First Corinthians chapter 15, we'll be looking at the first 11 verses here this evening. First Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 11. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was, in, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, how we do pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would root us in the scriptures, root us in the things which you have revealed, root us in these things, Lord, so that when people challenge us and unbelief, those who do not believe, they try to say that the great acts of salvation which you have accomplished in history did not ever happen, that we would be strengthened, that we'd be able to stand firm, and that we would cling to our faith, and that we would not be like those whom Paul describes when he says that perhaps you have believed in vain. May it not be true of us, O God. Grant us strength even through the preaching of your word, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 is the great chapter on the resurrection that the Apostle Paul gives. And he shows in this particular chapter that the resurrection is absolutely foundational for Christianity. And he goes so far as to say that if you do not believe in the resurrection, particularly not even the resurrection more generally, that's the question that he was actually asked by the Corinthians is, is there a general resurrection? And he answers by pointing to the resurrection of Christ and says, if you do not believe in the particular resurrection of Christ as it was historically done, then your faith is worth nothing to you. It can benefit you, not in the slightest, and you are above all others most to be pitied. And this, of course, makes sense if you're with us for the morning. It makes sense why this would be the case, 
because salvation is resurrection. Salvation is resurrection. And, and if it is going to be the case that Christ could not be raised from the dead, then it has to also be the case that those who believe in him can also not be raised from the dead. And if that's the case, then we are, as the Apostle Paul says, still in our sins, and the, and the gospel has, is not even good news at all. It cannot help us at all. The, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely foundational. Now, one of the things that's implicit in Paul's argument here is that there's a connection between Christ's resurrection and ours. As I mentioned, the Corinthians are asking a question about the general resurrection. There are some who are saying to the Corinthians, the dead are not raised. Paul then says, well, if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. So there's this connection. There's a general resurrection, which people are doubting. And Paul reasons to the resurrection of Christ. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. What's implicit all the way throughout this chapter is that the resurrection of Christ and your resurrection is really one. They're one. They're united together. If, if the one is there, the other will follow. If the one is not there, then the other is impossible. It cannot follow. If there is no general resurrection, then Christ can't be raised. If Christ wasn't raised, then there's no one else who can be raised either. The resurrection of God's people is tied to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why then, when Paul begins this passage in these verses that we read, verses 1 to 11, he goes to some lengths to show that the historical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is what's actually foundational. It's, what's, it's what is fundamental to the gospel, which we believe. You have no hope unless Christ was actually in history, in time, raised from the dead. And notice he emphasizes this really in two main ways in this passage that we read. After speaking about the, the need to believe it, he says a couple times that, that these things happened according to the scriptures. So he's, he makes an argument that all the things that have happened in history have happened in such a way that they are fulfillments of what God had already said. God had said from the beginning, this is always the way it was going to be, that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is foundational, that his death for sins and his resurrection were prophesied in the scriptures. And then secondly, the other thing that he does is he roots the resurrection in actual historical fact and even gives historical evidences. He says, you know, he was seen by Cephas, by that's Peter. Then he was seen by the 12. And then he was seen by over 500 witnesses. So he gives historical evidence for the resurrection. And so what I want to do here this evening as we look at the resurrection from another angle is simply to try to, uh, to, try to give some, some good grounding in those two things. First, that the, that the resurrection of Christ is in fact historical. And then secondly, that it is according to the scriptures that there is good historical evidence for the resurrection. And then secondly, that the resurrection did in fact happen according to the scriptures. And again, these are the two points that the apostle Paul gives in order to show that the resurrection is something that we must believe in and that it's irrational not to believe in it. You have to deny all good kinds of history and you have to deny the scriptures themselves in order to say that Christ himself was not raised from the dead. So even as in, this, in the morning, we looked at the theological significance of the resurrection. Here we're going to look at the fact of the resurrection, that it did in fact happen. It happened because God had said it was going to happen, and it happened actually in history with good historical evidences. So we'll, we're going to look at the resurrection under just those two broad categories here this evening, looking at the historical nature of it. Again, following... Paul's example of, of giving historical witnesses. And then secondly, we will look at the way in which both the death and the resurrection of Christ were prophesied uh, in the scriptures. 
So let's think about this a, a bit more. The reason this is so important, the reason why I want to, to think a bit about the historical nature of the resurrection is because this is something that is routinely denied today. We are told over and over again uh, by a number of people, uh, particularly in uh, e- even within the, the Christian church more broadly considered, broad evangelicalism, more and more people are saying that what really matters about the Lord Jesus Christ is, are the things that he did. And there's this message of hope that he gives with the resurrection, but whether or not he was actually raised from the dead, it doesn't really matter. The main thing that matters are the ethics of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here the problem is, is that the Lord Jesus Christ didn't come just to teach you the things that you should do in this life. He came to save his people from their sins. He came to give them hope. And if all that he's doing is teaching you the way you should live, and then he's pronouncing a message of hope, but he's still in the grave, that really cannot help you at all because there's no hope for you. If if you're certainly less than the Lord Jesus Christ, he can't be raised from the dead. What hope do you have of being raised from the dead? Surely you are still in your sins and you're going to die and there's nothing that can be done to help you. And so so we need to be very clear about this particular fact that it's not enough to say that we follow the Lord Jesus Christ if we're also going to say that he was not really and historically raised from the dead. That right now the Lord Jesus Christ is not dead. He is alive. The the grave could not hold him because he is the eternal son of God. And God, when he raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, did it in such a way that there is abundant proof that he did rise from the dead, such that it's actually irrational to say that he did not rise. That's, That's what we're going to be arguing here. And the reason this is the case is because there are a number of things that we know uh, historically about this, the resurrection, and particularly then those who deny the resurrection, they have to somehow fit all these pieces together and then still come to the conclusion that Christ was not raised from the dead. So we have things like the public nature of his execution, seen by very many people, the knowledge by his opponents beforehand that he had prophesied that he would rise from the dead on the third day, which then led them to, make, to place a guard at the tomb where there was a heavy stone that was placed in front of it. And that was in order to prevent the disciples from stealing the body, that sort of thing. And even even that was said, uh, the reason why uh, the the guard was put there was because because they didn't want the the disciples to to steal the body. That was known that that would be something that they, they may try to do. We have then also the change in the apostles that happened after the resurrection. And then we have finally the triumph of Christianity in the entire world which is proof, as some of the, the fathers, the ancient church fathers have said, that Christ does in fact live. The, the evidence of his living is present even now by the way in which he rules and over the entire world. And the problem is, is that those who want to deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ have to be able to give some kind of rational explanation for how all of these facts can come together and yet the Lord Jesus Christ could not, be, could not be raised from the dead. You even see an example of this, for instance, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 to 15. After uh, the resurrection happens, the, the soldiers who were on guard at the, at the stone, at, at the tomb, they realize the body is gone. So they go to the chief priests and the Pharisees who had hired them, and they say, what are we going to do? And they say, we will tell everyone that the disciples stole the body. So from the very beginning, from the moment that the Lord Jesus Christ was raised, there, is, there are these kind of two, two tracks And even as late as the 19th century, the 20th century, there were people who were saying, well, the disciples clearly stole the body, taking this basically right out of Scripture, the the kind of message that the unbelievers uh, have given. There's always been these these kind of two explanations. There are those who will say something like, 
the disciples stole the body, something happened, he didn't really rise from the dead, and then there are others who will say that Christ, in fact, did rise from the dead. So what I want to do here is just is go through some of these uh, explanations that have been given, so, some of these that are even, again, recorded in the scriptures. It's recorded in the scriptures that, that, they, that people would say that the disciples stole the body, and that is still said uh, again today. So I want to go through some of these things to show uh, really the impossibility of cogently speaking about the his- historicity of the resurrection if it in fact did not happen. So first we have the one that is mentioned in scripture, which is that the disciples stole the body. And the disciples stole the body. Now, there are a number of, of uh, important problems with this. Um, first, the disciples would have had to have moved this apparently very heavy stone while the guards were apparently asleep. Um, again, this would become even more implausible when you think about the fact that the guards were put there because they were afraid the disciples would steal the body. And then apparently they slept through the whole thing and the disciples uh, were able to steal the body. Secondly, another uh, important problem with this is that it would be uh, very unlikely, as many have pointed out, that the disciples, having stolen the body, would then be willing to die for the sake of the lie that they had perpetrated. That is to say, they know that the Lord Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, and yet all of them went to their graves and were even willing to be executed uh, for that apparent lie. Uh, this would seem to be incredibly uh, unlikely. And so the, the stolen body theory has actually been uh, largely even discredited today. Again, I mentioned as late as the 19th or 20th century, this was something of a popular theory, and many people have pointed out a lot of the holes in it. A second theory is the swoon theory, the idea that Christ never actually died and that he was able to leave on his own. A number of problems with this theory are that, one, he appeared to have died since um, he was pierced in his side by a spear. He obviously had tremendous wounds. Even if he uh, was able to live through that and somehow he appeared to be dead, it's hard to see how he could not have bled out during his three days being in the tomb without food or water or any medical attention. Uh, But regardless, even if he were to then live, it would be impossible for him to have removed the stone from the inside and then even more than that, then be able to defeat the guards who were standing guard while he was uh, in his weakened condition. So this, that, that kind of theory has really no kind of rationality to it. A third theory that's usually given is the hallucination theory or the idea of everyone having the same visions at the same times. So the disciples all have hallucinations of Christ as risen and thus this produced a kind of myth that people had on the basis of some people who really did believe that they saw uh, the Lord Jesus Christ rise from the dead. This one is really, in some ways, even the weakest. And the reason for this is because if this happened, and even in light of the fact that, the, remember, the guard was put there in order to prevent the story of his resurrection from coming, if, there were, if the, the idea of the resurrection was nothing more than subjective visions that people had, then very simply, people would have just opened the tomb and found the body. Uh, that would have been the easiest one to disprove. The, the, relig- the religious leaders were already worried about false allegations of the resurrection. And so if people were saying, well, he's, he's resurrected, then the very easy thing to do, if it was nothing except for visions, uh, is to produce the body and to show that the tomb is in fact not empty. And so for all, all these, all these uh, ideas have been put forward. All of them are not cogent. All of them have great problems. And it leads really to, to wonder, why is it then, if there are all of these historical facts that have been recorded, they've been witnessed, the normal way of doing history would lead you to the conclusion that you know, at least none of these theories are cogent, 
Why is it then that so many people do not believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? Why is this the case? The reason is because ultimately it's not a matter of historical evidence for those who deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a matter of presuppositions that those who deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not that they have been convinced of particular evidence that the Lord Jesus Christ was not raised. All the evidence, historical, logical, is in favor of the resurrection. The reason why people deny the resurrection is because they have already presupposed the resurrection to have been an impossibility. And so therefore they will deny the resurrection against the historical evidences and, and all of the reasoning. They will deny the resurrection against all those things because before they come to the evidence, they have already said it's impossible for God to raise the dead. Or even worse, there is no God and therefore the dead cannot be raised. It is actually a beginning from a state of atheism that is necessary in order to be able to deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is even not even to say anything about the victory of Christ over the world. This is something, again, I mentioned uh, some of the church fathers, particularly Athanasius, talked about the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ has defeated all of the nations. All the nations come and they bow down to him, something that none of the gods of other, any of the other nations have been able to do. And how uh, even all of the divisions that came with all the different religions, all the different peoples, all of those have been healed in the Lord Jesus Christ, such that now there is one people that, uh, that uh, goes across all boundaries of uh, culture, language, ethnicities, all of it, so that they could be found to be one in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is impossible to think that the Lord Jesus Christ would be able to accomplish that if he were not alive. That's, that's the idea that uh, Athanasius gives. The evidence of the, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he is even now living and reigning. We see that he is reigning because all the nations are becoming subject to him in a way that would not be possible if he were not alive. And so for all these reasons, we have to say with the Apostle Paul that there is good historical reasons to believe in the resurrection that he did make himself known. As the Apostle Paul says in another case, these things were not done in a corner. Everything was done publicly so that, so that there would be no excuse for anyone to say, well, God just didn't provide the evidence. God has provided quite a lot of evidence. And all those who have tried to deny the evidence have been unable to give anything like a cogent story to, to account for the things that we in fact know. And so the, 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 the resurrection is in fact historical. It is historical. Now, secondly, the resurrection happened according to the scriptures. Notice again in verses three and four in particular, I believed for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received that the, that the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So there, there are two things that are said to be done according to the scriptures, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time is to show the ways in which the scriptures had always prophesied that this would happen, such that it's not just historical rationality that you have to give up to deny uh, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You really have to give up the scriptures. From the beginning, God has always said that it would be through the death of the Messiah that the people would be saved. And then later, even as we see, as we'll see on the third day, 
as as uh, P, as uh, Paul says here, it's actually prophesied on the third day the Lord Jesus Christ would be raised from the dead, and this would be the salvation of his people. So first, does the, the Old Testament teach that the Messiah would have to die for the sins of his people? And to that we would have to say resoundingly, yes. The very first gospel promise on which really the rest of, of the scriptures are built already indicates that the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ is going to save his people is going to be by suffering. So if you remember in Genesis 3.15, that there would be one who would come from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, but that's not all that would happen. The serpent would, would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. So there is a deadly blow that's dealt to the serpent. And interestingly, the same verb to describe the blow that's dealt to the serpent is actually the word that's used to describe the blow that the serpent would do to, to uh, the Messiah which would seem to indicate that if the one's deadly, then the other would be deadly as well. At the very, very least, at the absolute minimum, we have to say that there would be a significant, a significant amount of suffering that the Messiah would have to endure to, to win the victory over Satan for his people. And again, because the, the verbs are the same, we'd have to actually indicate, uh, I think even further, that there would in fact be a death, that from the very beginning, the way in which the people of God would be saved is they would have a representative who would crush and kill Satan even as he himself dies. That's the very first gospel promise. And really, uh, this is developed in other places as well, probably most famously in uh, the servant songs of Isaiah. And Isaiah chapter 53 is, is probably the clearest place where it speaks of the Lord, the servant of the Lord being cut off like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth, and that he was then placed in the grave. And even more than that, not only was he a sinless sufferer, but we're even told in verse 10 that his soul makes an offering for guilt, that he himself in his death is actually providing an atonement for his people. The language of sacrifice is applied to the death of the Messiah. And even this, this Isaiah 53, it's not even just uh, an isolated fact in Isaiah or even with the servant songs. This was, Isaiah 53 was the fourth servant song that was given by the prophet Isaiah during this time. And in the third servant song, we have something similar where the Messiah gives his back to those who strike it. So there again, another, uh, another statement of the sufferings of the, of the Messiah. The second servant song as well in Isaiah 49 describes uh, the sufferings of the Messiah and even speaks about the way in which uh, he's at, in his despair. He's crying out to God for God to hear him. And so uh, all the way through the servant songs, it's not just that, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the servant. In Isaiah, he is the suffering servant. In all the servant songs, he is suffering for the sake of his people. And in the climactic song, we are told that this suffering leads to a death whereby he atones for the sins of his people, whereby his, his soul actually makes an offering for guilt, for the guilt of his people. Now, if this is the case, then this brings in a whole number of other important texts if, if the death of the Messiah is like a sin offering, as it's said in Isaiah 53, then this means that really the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament is teaching us the same thing, regardless of whether or not we have the, Old, the New Testament to tell us that the Lord Jesus Christ suffers and dies, and this is the fulfillment of the, new, of the Old Testament sacrifice. This is, of course, the case. But my point is, is that even just on the basis of looking at the servant songs and the way in which those relate to the sacrifices, that is enough for us to know that the sacrifices themselves pointed forward in their own context to the way in which the Messiah would suffer and die to save his people. That he would not just be the high priest who's anointed, but that he would also be the one who dies 
on behalf of his people, that, he, that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered and died according to the scriptures. Now, this is said in other places as well. Think of Daniel chapter 9, particularly in verse 26, where there is an anointed one who would be cut off, the Messiah. Remember, Messiah just means anointed one. So in the original, that would just be the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. This is after in verse 24, it is said that at the end of 70 weeks, he would make atonement for sins and that he would bring in everlasting righteousness. So again, this, the same kinds of things. The Messiah is going to die. In his death, he will make an atonement for sins. We see other texts which speak of the way in which the Messiah would suffer and die, uh, particularly Psalm 2 Psalm and Psalm 118, where the Messiah is surrounded by all the nations. Everyone is calling for him uh, to be destroyed, and then God miraculously saves uh, his anointed one, delivers him uh, from death in that regard. We have all of these things are clear texts which speak to the reality that the Messiah had to suffer and die for the sake of his people. But we actually have even more than that in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, it's not just things like the sacrifices, which are prophecies of what the Messiah would do. We have other things. Even the people of the Old Testament are themselves prophecies that teach us what the Messiah would do. And this we have uh, by the description of the Old Testament itself. That is to say, the Old Testament teaches that the Messiah would be like Moses. So in Deuteronomy 18, the, the, God will raise up a prophet like you, Moses, from among the, your brethren. So already there is an anticipation. Whenever there is a description of Moses, this is in some ways going to correspond to what the Messiah himself would do. We have other, uh, other people like this in the Old Testament. David is probably the other uh, great one. The Messiah in 2 Samuel 7 is a son of David. And therefore, all of the, the prophecies that come after, uh, after the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 that are built on this, they, they re refer to the Lord Jesus Christ like he's David. There are even a few places where the Messiah is actually called David. He's given the name David because he's going to be like David. That's the point. David's life is a picture of what the Messiah's life will be. And so in Hosea chapter 3, in Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 37, the Messiah is actually called David. Other people who are like David and therefore like the Messiah, Joseph and Esther, all of these people, and in all of these, these people who are in the Old Testament, all of them have in common that they suffer greatly before they come into their kingdom. David is persecuted by Saul. Moses is rejected by his people, thrown into a river before that. Even the way in which Moses is delivered prefigures the way in which his people would be delivered, such that Moses suffers the, the fate of his people before he receives a salvation which his people would also receive. Moses' suffering and salvation is like his people's suffering and salvation, just like the Lord Jesus Christ. David suffered at the hands of Saul. Joseph was sold to his brothers before he becomes the king of Egypt. Esther was a lowly Jew in a foreign land before she becomes the queen and even then is willing to lay down her life for the sake of the salvation of her people. All of the people in the Old Testament are then also prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why it is correct to see Psalm 22 as a prophecy of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ, where it's a Psalm of David, but it begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then David goes on to catalog a number uh, of, of great sufferings. The sufferings that are described there go beyond what David suffered, and the glory that follows at the end of the Psalm goes beyond 
what David, in fact, received. The reason why David could speak in the first person is because it was made clear through prophecy that the Lord Jesus Christ would be like David. And therefore, David's sufferings were a window into the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the scriptures from beginning to end, whether it be the events that happened, the people, the actual words of prophecy, all of the institutions, all of them in their own way teach that the Messiah had to suffer for the sins of his people in order to save them. This is just all this to prove that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered for our sins. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, secondly, not only is this the case, but the resurrection of the Messiah is also prophesied and taught in the scriptures as well. Going back to Isaiah 53, this is probably the, the, the classic place to go to. After the Lord Jesus Christ is put in the grave in verse 9, and after he is told, it's, it's said that it's the Lord's will to crush him, then immediately after that, it says that he will prolong his days. So he, he prolongs his days after he's placed in the grave. And after that, then, he divides the spoil with the many, and through the knowledge of him, many are made righteous. It is after his death that he prolongs his days and is able to see his offspring in, in verse 10. If we go back to Daniel chapter 9, the son of man who is cut off, who makes atonement for the sins of his people, is also the same son of man who in Daniel chapter 7 is going to receive an everlasting kingdom. So in some way, the Messiah is going to die and be cut off, and yet also he's going to receive an everlasting kingdom which will never end, which again implies that this Messiah will in fact be raised from the dead. Perhaps one of the clearest places is Psalm 1610 where David, again, is the one who is speaking, and he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. Now, there is some sense in which this first phrase, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, there is some sense in which David could say that applies to him. He knew, he would have known that there would have been a resurrection and that God will ultimately not abandon his soul to Sheol. He will, Sheol just means the grave. And this would be true for you as well. God will not abandon your soul to the grave if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That could be true of everyone. However, the second phrase cannot be true of David in any sense, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. Here, it's not just the idea of resurrection. It is the idea of resurrection, but even more than that, you will not be in the grave long enough for your body to see corruption. David, even though he will be raised one day, his body certainly has seen corruption. So though the verse itself is talking about resurrection as a whole. At least the second clause has to be only about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the way it's interpreted in Acts chapter two. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. His tomb is with us to this day. The idea is he's seen quite a lot of corruption. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Because he knew the promises that were made to him on the basis of the Davidic covenant, he says that David was able to understand that the Christ would be raised from the dead, that he did not abandon, he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He was raised from the dead. And this resurrection generally is taught actually all over the Psalms. Psalm 50 teaches it clearly, Psalm 73. We've looked at uh, Psalm 115 and, and 116 in various sermons. I very regularly mention Isaiah 25. Uh, the, the veil that is cast over all people is swallowed up. God, God swallows up death forever. Isaiah 26, 
uh, your, your, those who have fallen asleep and have died will come alive, very explicitly said. Daniel chapter 12, some will, will, will receive the resurrection in one way, uh, to life and others to death. All of these things are actually very explicit teachings about the resurrection. Resurrection has always been a foundational theme all throughout the scriptures. Think of, uh, as well, of more um, poetic uh, descriptions of it. Think of Ezekiel 37 with the valley of the dry bones. It's actually a vision that Ezekiel sees. What's the purpose of the dry bones coming to life through the, the preaching of the word? It's to say that the restoration of Israel is a resurrection, that there is a resurrection that is coming. And the idea here is that if the people are going to be resurrected, then the Messiah has to be resurrected as well because they go together. They go together. Now, all that's to say is that the, the Old Testament teaches both that the Messiah must be raised from the dead and that all people who believe in the Messiah will also be raised from the dead. Now, is there any place in the scriptures that teach that the Messiah would in fact be raised on the third day? Now, notice that's what the text says. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Not just that he rose according to the scriptures, but that he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. Do the scriptures in fact teach that the Messiah would be raised on the third day? Now, before we look at the text that actually does in fact teach us, there's an important principle that has to be, that, that has to be explained. And that is the idea that even in the Old Testament, the idea of the Messiah being connected with his people was already taught. The idea that there would be a union with the Messiah by his people was already something that was foundational for the theology that goes actually all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 is both the total number of people who believe and it's the singular individual who leads the people. Such that the, such that the victory of the one means the victory of the other. Something very similar happens with David and Goliath. David wins and all of the people get the victory. Or think of even more explicit places that teach this. In Isaiah chapter 49, in the second servant song, the Messiah is called Israel. And yet, a few verses later, he saves Israel from their sins. So the Messiah is both Israel, he's a singular person who cries out to God in his distress, and yet later, he is also the one who saves Israel. How could it be that the Messiah is both Israel and the one who saves Israel? The reason is because the Old Testament teaches that there is a connection between the head and the members. This is always the way that, that it was to be, all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Something similar happens in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. There's this promise that the Son of Man is going to receive an everlasting kingdom in Daniel chapter 7. And yet, in the interpretation of the vision of the Son of Man receiving this, it's interpreted as, by the angels, it's an authoritative interpretation of the vision given to Daniel. It says that the saints of God are the ones who receive this everlasting kingdom. Is it the case that the saints are the son of man and that there's no single individual that's being spoken of? That's surely not the case. The reason why it's said that way is because if the son of man receives the kingdom, then all the people who are in him also receive the kingdom because there's a union between the two. Christ is true Israel. This is the reason why then Matthew, without hesitation, will say that it is a prophecy in Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son, even though in the original context, that is only about actual Israel being brought out of Egypt through, through Moses. People have said, well, Matthew's clearly taking this out of context. He's not taking it out of context. He's reading Hosea 
in the way that the Old Testament prophets demand that all of the scriptures be interpreted, which is that there is that the Messiah is true Israel. He is true Israel. So what happens to Israel happens to the Messiah. Now, with that in mind, it's then very significant that in Hosea chapter 6, in a description of the restoration of Israel, we are told, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. After two days, this is the third day, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. The restoration of Israel is said in the scriptures to be a third day resurrection. Now, there's actually a very, it's very difficult to understand how the third day principle even applies to the nation of Israel as a whole. It's very clear the way in which it applies to the true Israel, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel, as a people, we, as the people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are true Israel, we were restored when the Lord Jesus Christ, who is true Israel, was raised from the dead on the third day. That is the fulfillment of what Hosea is saying. On the third day, when the Messiah is raised from the dead, on that, in that very moment, that is when Israel is in fact restored. And so Israel's resurrection is a third day resurrection because the Messiah, the true Israelite, was in fact raised from the dead on the third day. And so the scriptures have in fact taught, as the, Lord, as the Apostle Paul has said, the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. He appeared to many people. He, uh, he was seen by many people. He has given every historical evidence that this in fact happened. And God had always said it was going to happen. Any possible way you could ever want this historical event to be verified. You have it out of the mouth of God. You have it done publicly and openly such, such that none can cogently deny it. Any way that you would want to, to be, be certain that this event did happen, God has given it to you. God has given it to you. And the reason he does this is because, as the Apostle Paul argues here, the resurrection is absolutely foundational to your salvation. It is absolutely foundational. If you do not believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was, in fact, raised from the dead, you yourself cannot be saved. And this, again, if you think about this, in light of that last point about the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ is true Israel, you can see why this would be the case. As it happened to the Messiah, so it happens for his people. As his tomb was empty and is empty, so yours will be empty. As the first fruits, so the harvest. As the representative true Israel, so all of those who are the true Israelites who believe in him. As the one, so the other. This is the hope of the world. In a world of death, Christ still lives. Christ still lives. May God grant you the grace to hold fast to this confession firm to the end. Let's pray. Father, how we do thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How we do thank you for the ways in which he has fulfilled everything spoken of him in the Old Testament. Lord, it's a wonderful thing, the, the wisdom of the way in which all of these things were spoken beforehand, spoken in such a way that the unlearned and the child can receive it with faith, and yet the wise and understanding can miss it. Lord, we are thankful 
that you are the one who grants faith sovereignly. And we do pray that you would help us to receive it as little children. And though we be ridiculed in this world for believing something that the world seems, sees to be as irrational, that we would be able to understand that the only irrational thing that could possibly be done in this world is not to believe in the living and true God, the God who cannot lie, and the God who is the God of life. Lord, we do pray that you would help us and strengthen us in this way, for we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart, that through the preached word your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.